Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Boris Johnson undertook a major refresh of his government this week with some striking new appointments to the cabinet and the sacking of several long-standing allies. He has removed people from government, not because they're incompetent, not because uh, they weren't loyal enough, etc., which all they're often the sort of narratives you see, but because often he has to refresh his team and move out the way, move people out of the way. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be dissecting the Prime Minister's first major reshuffle of the Parliament. We'll be looking at who went up, who went sideways and those who went down and what this all tells us about where the Johnson government is going next. Political editor George Parker and political correspondent Laura Hughes will take us into what happened. And later, we'll be discussing a new book, Broken Heartlands, A Journey Through Labour's Lost England by me. I've been pootling around England for the last year trying to find out whether the party can win back the parts of the country it lost. I'll be chatting through what I found out with our chief political correspondent, Jim Picard. So, with a very big political story this week, let's get into the main topic. Boris Johnson has been threatening to reshuffle for his cabinet for some time and finally did so on Wednesday. The Prime Minister made some significant surgery to his top team, with Liz Truss going to the Foreign Office, Michael Gove to oversee the levelling up agenda and Nazim Sahawi promoted to Education Secretary. But there were also some brutal sackings, including local government secretary Robert Jenrick and education secretary Gavin Williamson. But the most notable casualty was Dominic Raab, the foreign secretary who was demoted to the Ministry of Justice, although he managed to gain the courtesy title of deputy prime minister. Have you still got a job, sir? Have you accepted the demotion, Dominic Raab? Have you been sacked? Have you accepted the demotion, Dominic Raab? So George Parker, this is a long-awaited reshuffle of the government. We've been writing for weeks, if not months, I think, that Boris Johnson was going to do this and was anticipating it. Now it's finally happened. What do you make of it? Well, as you say, Seb, it's one of those things that we obsess about here in the Westminster Village. Uh, I'm not so sure in the real world, as many people pay uh, so much attention to the comings and goings in Downing Street on reshuffle day. But it was a, a you know, much bigger reshuffle than expected. There had been some speculation that he would move one or two failing ministers, but it would be fairly limited. But in the end, it was a big reshuffle, really, I suppose, triggered by the fact that the prime minister decided to basically demote his foreign secretary in one of the top jobs in the cabinet. And once you start moving people at the very top of the cabinet, there's a ripple effect all the way through. And we often try to find patterns in reshuffles to uh, try and discern what the prime minister's grand plan is. With this one, I think the first thing we should say is he was determined to move out some people who he felt were seriously underperforming, the deadwood, if you like, people who were attracting negative headlines the whole time. So out went uh, 
Dominic Raab from the Foreign Office to the Justice Department. Robert Jenrick, who'd been involved in a couple of scandals, was moved out of the housing ministry to make way for Michael Gove. And of course, Gavin Williamson, the uh, perma-failing education secretary, also moved out. And once that happened, then of course, it paved the way for a much wider reshuffle, um, which spanned 48 hours, really. So obviously, I think the general themes you and I dissected, George, were number one, it was um, removing political deadwood, shall we say, people who were either not performing in their roles, there was political liabilities who were moved, but also there were some quite bold appointments. And Laura Hughes, great to have you on as always. Let's begin with probably the most notable promotion, which is Liz Truss as Foreign Secretary. And it was kind of inevitable Dominic Raab was going to be pushed out of the Foreign Office following his handling of the Afghanistan situation. But he didn't go quietly. He spent an hour with Boris Johnson and managed to extract the title of Deputy Prime Minister, even if it comes with no power. How do you think Liz Truss is going to be in the role compared to Mr Raab? I think the appointment of Liz Truss is really interesting because Conservative home polling has shown she's the most popular cabinet minister in the prime minister's top team. And Boris Johnson's clearly seen that, seen she's very popular and is putting her into this really high profile role. We've now got two women in two of the top four jobs in government. And she's interesting because she is a massive China hawk. And that's going to play out, I think, over the next few years or forever, how long she's in this role, because clearly that is where the government is pivoting. And so she's respected by a lot of Tory MPs on that front. She has some international clout now, given her previous guise as International Trade Secretary. She loves going out on camera. She's very much loved doing her own thing. I think this role will actually be a bit of a challenge for her, because in her previous guys. She has had a lot more freedom, room to manoeuvre, she can speak her mind. And actually, when you're in the Foreign Office, really, at the end of the day, it's number 10 that dictates the big foreign policy decisions. And she might struggle with that. But I think given how high profile this is, she's not going to be too displeased. And of course, it's interesting she's in there, because potentially, if she is some sort of leadership rival to the Prime Minister one day, He really is giving her some airtime there, which shows he's A, confident in her abilities and B, recognises that she's quite popular with the public. And it shows he's not too threatened by her at this point. And I think, George, that is one of the most interesting things about Miss Truss's appointment, because as Laura said, she is very popular. She's often talked as a future Conservative leadership contender, as is Rishi Sunak. And I think what Mr Johnson has done here is to bring Liz Truss to the top to balance out that idea that there's not just one heir apparent, because when Boris Johnson was having all those issues over the summer about policy and direction and COVID and all the rest of it, Everybody was talking of Rishi Sunak as the obvious successor. Rishi's going to challenge him. Rishi's going to succeed him. Now you've got two people at the top who could do that. And that's quite handy, I think, for Downing Street. Yes, yeah, so, um, you can read it in two ways, can't you? On, on the one hand, you could say it's a sign of the confidence of the prime minister that you know the two most senior people, leaving aside Priti Patel, potentially as Home Secretary, the Foreign Secretary, with an 85% approval rating on the Conservative Home Activist website, and uh, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, with 75% approval rating. Boris Johnson's is 12, by the way, by comparison. So you could read it as a sign of confidence the Prime Minister is prepared to put in place at the top of the Cabinet table two people who are seen as, by party activists at least, at least as far more popular than him. But as you say, there's also another way of looking at it, which is that by having more than one heir apparent, that helps to have a sort of team of rivals, divide and rule, play one off against the other. 
And we know that's the way that Boris Johnson often likes to operate his, his government. He's definitely, Laura, rewarded some of his long-standing allies, though, in two appointments that we saw to the Cabinet. One is Anne-Marie Trevelyan to the Department for International Trade, and the second is Nadine Dorries, the Cota Secretary, and Anne-Marie Trevelyan, who's known as AMT in Westminster. She's a long-standing Brexiter. She's an MP for the Northern Constituency of Berwick, which is certainly not a, a former industrial heartland. It's rolling countryside, but she's a strong Northern voice there, and again, someone who's very pro-Brexit. The second one is Nadine Dorries, who has been a Parliament since 2005, been a long-time advocate for Boris Johnson's leadership, and I think her appointment as Culture Secretary raised a few eyebrows, shall we say. What did you make of both of those? Nadine Dorries is definitely the most controversial appointment and took a lot of backbench MPs by surprise because clearly she has been very outspoken in the past. Many see her as someone who's going to lead the campaign against, you know, woke elements of the metropolitan media and that she's not going to be afraid to sort of pursue these culture wars. And so I think there will be certain elements of the party that are really excited by her appointment. I think Anne-Marie Trevelyan, less controversial. Yes, she's been rewarded. I think overall she's regarded as a, a competent minister who isn't particularly controversial or outspoken. And I think actually as well in the back of the Prime Minister's mind, he knows he has to be seen to appoint women to more senior positions. And I think this plays into his decision making a little bit. We still don't have any anywhere near sort of 50-50 gender split. And we haven't had, you know, anything looking like that really since Tony Blair's time. But that will definitely have been one of the reasons, I think, for putting these two women in those positions. And of course, he is rewarding loyalty, which we know he has done, and, and that's part of the reason we ha- we ended up with characters like Gavin Williamson in position for so long. Because I think the gender balance has gone from about 22% female to 26% female, which is a good upward stretch, but still nowhere near the high of 36% under Tony Blair. But George, we have to talk about who I think is the most interesting appointment here, which is Michael Gove. And he's left the Cabinet Office where he's managed to build a real power base there, looking at things from civil service reform to saving the union, to being a, a key decision maker on the coronavirus pandemic, to the Ministry of Communities, Housing and Local Government which I think is traditionally seen as a bit of a backwater in Whitehall, having to pick up all these odds and sods of policy that no one's that much bothered about. Yet Michael Gove has been put there to do what is the most important thing now for the Johnson government, and that is levelling up, tackling regional inequality, and trying to say to those first-time Tory voters in 2019, we're delivering for you. And it's, again, it's another remarkable move for Gove, who, you know, as we know, challenged Boris Johnson for the Tory leadership in 2016 and ended his hopes then. Now the Prime Minister has entrusted really the next election to the guy who almost killed off his hopes of being Prime Minister. <laughs> it's, it is an extraordinary thing, isn't it? And, um, you know, again, I suppose you could say a sign of the confidence of the Prime Minister. He's prepared to put someone who's regarded widely in the Parliamentary Party as the treacherous Michael Gove. But the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, Boris Johnson's come to appreciate Michael Gove's qualities as someone who actually gets things done. And, you know, you could agree or disagree with some of the things that he's done as a minister, but you have to say that he's one of the more effective ministers in having an idea of what he wants to do and then actually doing it. And you saw that when he was education secretary in the coalition government later on as a sort of reforming justice secretary as well. And I think he saw Michael Gove as someone who would actually, you know, make a department work and bring some direction to it. As we record this, we don't quite know yet what Michael Gove's 
department is going to be called. It's currently the Ministry of Housing, Community and Local Government, which is a bit of a mouthful. Some talk it's going to be renamed to the Department of the Union and Leveling Up or something like that to give you an idea of how central this is to Boris Johnson's objective. And yes, you know, we're moving to what Boris Johnson hopes at least will be a post-Brexit, post-COVID phase of his premiership, the bit where he focuses on domestic policy, the thing that, as you said, Seb, determines general elections generally. And of course, levelling up is right at the heart of that. Yes, though, because I think really there's been this sense around Whitehall of what is levelling up? We don't actually have much idea. And, you know, when I spoke to Boris Johnston Hartlepool earlier this year, he said people walk around down the street and have no idea what it's about. And he's made two other interesting appointments to Dulu or MCHLG or whatever it's called by the time people hear this. One is Neil O'Brien, who is writing this levelling up white paper. And the other is Kemi Bednock, who was in the Treasury and is seen again as very close to people in Downing Street. So you get a sense from Boris Johnson that this reshuffle is about drawing a line under the pandemic, under Brexit, and focusing very much on domestic matters, as well as those two key appointments to the Foreign Office. It definitely felt to me as though this was a reshuffle that kind of looks ahead at wargaming for a general election. And I think that Number 10 have realised that they really need to turn this levelling up slogan into an actual plan of action that the public understands and it is really fascinating that Michael Gove was put in this position because as you both said he is definitely seen as somebody who is both effective and very forceful than most other cabinet ministers you have there and he's clearly becoming the sort of go-to minister when it comes to Boris Johnson facing really big strategic challenges and the appointment of him really does signal the fact that Boris Johnson is potentially concerned, actually, about this levelling up agenda and the fact it's really failed to, to do anything. And, and it, it's not entirely, of course, his fault. He's had a global pandemic to deal with. But this really is a reshuffle designed to try and move everyone away from the last 18 months, put them on an election path. And he hopes that putting these ministers in position is actually going to to mean this happens now. And it's really fascinating. It's going to be a massive test as to whether or not he can increase his majority. And I think Labour are probably quite concerned, actually. The other appointment, George, we should mention on the domestic front as well as Gov is Nadim Zahawi. And everyone will know him from touring the broadcast studios as the vaccines delivery minister. And he's won plaudits from Tory MPs for being a very steady hand on the tiller for knocking the Department of Health into shape. He's now got to sort out the Department for Education. And it's no surprise at all Gavin Williamson was booted out of that. I know there was some talk he could stay in government, but clearly Boris Johnson had felt that he was sort of done there. What do you make of Nadim Zahawi? Do you think that he's got the substance to deal with all the school catching up, exams, post-pandemic, further education, the skills agenda again, all part of the levelling up programme? Well, he's someone who, as you say, he was in charge of the vaccines programme. Some people would say that was, of course, being administered by the by the NHS and, you know, how much work did he really have to do? But, you know, he's a competent guy, Nadim Zahawi, without a shadow of a doubt. Listeners will know that he set up YouGov. He's, um, he's a business person. He sort of focuses on getting results, I suppose. But it's also to say that he's not had any sort of, you know, by definition, cabinet level experience before. And this is one of the you know, most crucial parts of the government's domestic agenda. If you think about where is the government's exposed flanks 
as far as the next election is concerned. Well, we talked about levelling up and the promise of delivering on those grand promises to the North and the Midlands. Then you've got the health department, the huge waiting list backlog there, which Shadid Javid's having to deal with. And then the other one is education, because you know there is a backlog, as we know, of in the, in the classroom of well, the, lear- the learning backlog, basically. And that's the thing he's got to come to terms with. We don't want to see a blighted generation. And he's also got to sort out the problem of what you do about exams and the grade inflation we've seen over the last two years as well. So there, it's a big agenda for Nadim Zahawi. But I think, you know, he's someone who's probably going to rise to the challenge. And then, George, I wanted to ask you about Nadine Dorries, because that's the one that's really got people, I think, wound up, you might say, because she was replaced Oliver Dowden, who used to be Deputy Chief of Staff to David Cameron. He's gone over to Conservative Party HQ, which, as Laura said, has got everyone's eyebrows raised about elections and getting the Conservative campaign machine sorted after it lost the Cheshire and Amersham by-election. But Dorries is, for one, for better phrase, a real culture warrior in these debates we have about culture and statues and art galleries and Channel 4 and the BBC. And it really is a shot across the bows from the government to say that, you know, we're going to double down on this thing because for Boris Johnson, they see it as a very good way to divide Labour and to put it into a very tricky situation in its traditional seats in the North and the Midlands by, I guess, it's social conservatism, you would say. They definitely regard that as um, as an area of political advantage. And you've got Dougie Smith, an advisor in number 10, to Boris Johnson, who's very keen to pursue this kind of social conservative agenda. And Nadine Doris is very much at the forefront of that. You know, in the past, um, she opposed, for example, gay marriage. She's changed her mind on that, by the way, it's important to say. And she's been very critical of the BBC as well. The question I suppose I would have is, to what extent is this just a sort of poke liberal media elite in the eye? And how much of it about is about really taking down the BBC or, I don't know, we expect the government to privatise Channel 4, that's for sure. Bearing in mind that the BBC is a cherished institution, particularly among older voters who tend to vote Conservative, and it's one of the flagships of global Britain as well. So you've got to be a bit careful about it. But what is certainly true, it does discombobulate the Labour Party. You know, you speak to Labour politicians, and they are anxious about how they engage in this whole area. And so Nadine Doris, I'm sure, will will be reveling in that new role. Finally, Laura, can I just quickly pick up on some of the people who lost their jobs? So obviously, the most surprising one to me was John Whittingdale. He was junior culture minister and was brought into the government by Boris Johnson to oversee the privatisation of Channel 4. And I think he told the BBC he was very surprised it came out of the blue. Also, Robert Buckland, who is what was the nice one nation, well-meaning, shall we say, justice secretary. And he seems to have gone because he just really wasn't bringing anything massively to the table. Um, So it is all quite a brutal business. And you think of people like Robert Jenrick, the Housing Secretary, and Gavin Williamson, they were long-time supporters of Boris Johnson's leadership bid, and yet they seem to have just been pushed out of government because politically he wants to make a clean break. Yeah, and reportedly, Prime Minister is actually sort of quite emotional letting go of some of these ministers who haven't really done anything wrong. But his reasoning was that they have to go in order to make way for new people. John Whittingdale was a really surprising one, but it's it's interesting because whilst he's often sort of made out to be incredibly anti-BBC, actually overall he has been supportive of it as an institution, so perhaps that signals something. Robert Buckland, some MPs are speculating he was there to appease a lot of One Nation Tories. There's no need for him to do that and serve that role anymore, so he was cast aside. And I think really he was a casualty of the fact that Dominic Raab had to go as foreign secretary 
and actually it made sense for Rob to be moved across into justice because he's a lawyer and it, it made a lot of sense and so Buckland was a was a casualty of that but I mean this is the reality of politics you don't necessarily have to do something wrong but if you actually don't make a huge impression on people then that can see you dismissed as well and he's rewarded loyalty to other MPs but obviously I think it took a lot of us by surprise and it was quite an emotional day for a lot of junior ministers. And finally, George, I don't want to say these things are a success or not, but it feels like it's sort of strengthened the government in the right places. There were some obvious weaknesses. Those have been tackled. People will feel controversial about the likes of Nadine Dorries. But at that level, it does feel as if Boris Johnson has done what he set out to achieve. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about is the question about the Treasury, because obviously we've seen a whole bunch of new ministers come into the Treasury. And Simon Clark has been appointed Chief Secretary of the Treasury. He's one of the very first Red War Tories representing the seat of Middlesbrough South. He's good friends with Rishi Sunath, but he's also someone who wants to challenge the Treasury's economic thinking. So that's going to be, I think, the big question when we look into the budget and the spending review of how much room Rishi Sunak has to move with this whole new team around him installed by Downing Street. Yes, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a complete overhaul of the Treasury team. Um, I think John Glenn, the city minister, is I think the only one of the Treasury ministers, apart from Rishi Sunak, who's staying put. And as I say, it's been run from number 10. You've got a champion of the red wall in there. Does this mean that the government's going to be sort of slightly more generous in terms of spending between the spending review and projects, particularly in the north? Well, it's possible. You know, ultimately, the prime minister is the first lord of the chancellor and first lord of the treasury and what he says goes. So I think that's probably a more important part of the dynamic than having a new uh, minister in there as the chief secretary, effectively the bean counter in the treasury. It's important to remember, of course, that Rishi Sunak is himself a Northern MP. As you say, he represents a neighbouring constituency to Simon Clark's in Middlesbrough. He's been a champion of the Freeport in Middlesbrough as well on Teesside. So it'd be wrong to say that Rishi Sunak is blind to the, the Northern dimension of the government's agenda, but certainly there is a tilt in the balance of the Treasury there. Laura and George, thank you very much. The 2019 election was one of the most disastrous in the Labour Party's history. When the results came in, it was instantly blamed on Brexit, Boris Johnson's popularity and Jeremy Corbyn. But was there more to this story? Well, as listeners of the podcast will know, I've spent the last year travelling around England trying to answer that question in my new book, Broken Heartlands, A Journey Through Labour's Lost England. Jim Picard, it's great to have you on. We're going to have a little chat about the book. But if we just cast back to that 2019 election, I remember so much of that time we were second guessing what was going to happen because in 2017, we were all quite badly burned. We didn't see Jeremy Corbyn's big rise coming and all of our reporting and the travels and things we did made it think we weren't so sure about 2019. But when that result came in, it was much bigger than we expected for the Tories and a much bigger defeat for Labour. Yeah, it's one of those curious things, isn't it, Seb, where, you know, you spend a lot of time up in the Red Wall at the end of 2019. I did some trips out. I remember remember being in the Rother Valley and talking to local Labour activists who said it was just appalling on the doorsteps. Someone had been beaten up by a former Labour voter. They they were literally, you know, their, their morale had completely collapsed. You know, as you say in your book, there was an 11% lead for the Conservatives at the start of the election. It fell to six at one point, but by the end of the campaign, the Tories were still 11% ahead. So it was not a surprise that they won. I just think in our reporting, we had to be really, really cautious because of the mm. whole what happened in 2017, where, again, it, it just looked as if Theresa May was going to smash Jeremy Corbyn. 
And of course, as listeners will know, things things turn out a little differently. So we, we had to hedge our bets a little bit. But I think you know, the wind was blowing very strongly uh, over those couple of months. And, and yeah, I think we all knew it was it was going to end up that way. But there was something there was something even though you knew it was going to happen. I mean, to some of the places that in the Red Wall that changed hands were still gobsmacking somehow, weren't they, Seb? Don't you think? Wakefield sticks to my mind, which is the uh, fourth chapter in my book, because you go around that and Wakefield is quite an urban, gritty place. It's also got quite a diverse population. And when you look at it, it doesn't feel like a Tory place yet. It fits the characteristics of the Red Wall, which is never having had a Tory MP in living memory, a very strong Brexit vote, and always having a consistent but never massive Tory vote there. I think one of the things that we often get wrong in our report, which I tried to correct when I was spending more time in the book, is you go to these places and you go to the town centres. And all town centres across England are struggling. They were before the pandemic and are even more so now. Whereas, in fact, the real story of these places is outside. It's in the out-of-town shopping parks, it's in the new private housing estates. And that's where you find where I think the new Tory vote has come from, as these towns have gone through deindustrialization and the kind of what I call in the book collectivized communities have broken up, being replaced by a more individualistic society. And I think it was the economist that called this Barrett Britain, wasn't it? I think you you were probably the first or second journalist to use the Red Wall phrase in copy, weren't you? But it was James Canagasorium who was the, the pollster who in, invented it, wasn't it? How did you first meet him, and and how persu- why was why was it him who was more persuasive than other analysts that you were listening to in twenty nineteen? So I met James Canagasorium, who used to work in the city as a banker, and he was recruited to the post as populist, and then went to work for Ruth Davidson on the 2017 campaign for the Scottish Parliament, where the Scottish Tories did really well. And a mutual contact said, you should meet this guy, you're going to get on very well with him. And we went for a drink and found out that we had a shared love of data, because in a past life before political journalism, I used to be a computer scientist and still have a kind of a nerdish love for chewing over spreadsheets and that kind of thing. And I remember it was a couple couple of months before, I think it was about August 2019, where James K called me up and said, you're going to want to see this. I've been doing some numbers and I think there's going to be a Brexit election. It could go really big. And he actually came into the FT with John Byrne Murdoch, who was our very esteemed stats guru and a whole bunch of other people there, including Rula Halaf, who's now editor of the FT. And he made this presentation and made the very persuasive case that Brexit was about to redraw the boundaries. And these seats, the crucial thing about the Red Wall is he made the demographic argument that if one goes, they all go in a big pattern. That's obviously what happened, that all these seats just went again and again and again. It wasn't just marginals here and there, as you normally get in the election. The thing that was particularly persuasive about James Kay's analysis of the situation is that he could see that the Tory vote had been gathering steam over many years. And in the 2017 election, when we were all focused on Corbyn, the fact he almost became prime minister, he pointed out that all these UKIP voters were going back home to the Tories. And if that kept happening, as well as winning some marginal votes from Labour, then so many of these seats could go. And I think because it was based on demographic, because it was based on electoral trends, and also based on a particular former he did to identify the Englishness of these places. We're both from the northeast. I'm, I'm from a rural village on the North Yorkshire Moors. Which is which has been very Tory my entire lifetime. It sort of defies this this uh, kind of cliche that the South is Tory and the North is is always has always been Labour. You know, if you're from a rural part of Northern England, they are very very Tory. But Hartlepool, which is probably about thirty or forty miles away from my parents, that is somewhere which is you know it's just heavy industry, port, 
massively working class and just just somewhere that you could not have imagined 10 years ago that it would become conservative and and it's just something quite extraordinary about that and i think the other point about hartlepool that you know we got into back in the spring is that mm. the, the sort of essay question i guess for seb's book when he set out was probably can Keir Starmer win back the red wall that he'd lost but i think it's almost mutated into a new question hasn't it seb which is is there more red wall that Labour can lose because we no longer have a have a sort of effective UKIP and we no longer have an effective Brexit party. Hartlepool was so interesting, Jim, because it's where I ended the book that I actually spent some time there with Boris Johnson. And I described it as being with the Pied Piper in the middle of a hurricane. But Hartlepool by-election happened after Jeremy Corbyn was no longer leader of the Labour Party and after Brexit had happened. And those who put down the 2019 result on those two factors have to say, well, how did that win there? And of course, there were other factors. There was the vaccine rollout programme, the popularity of Ben Houchen, who's the Tory mayor of the Tees Valley region, who was re-elected with 73% of the vote. But when you went back and at the very front of Broken Heartland, you can see James Kay's original table about what defined the Red War. And there's a whole bunch of other seats there that fitted the same pattern. And I think if it hadn't been for the Brexit party being so strong, a lot of others could have gone. And yeah, I remember talking to Alan Johnson, the former Labour Home Secretary, and he felt without the Brexit party, all of Hull would have gone Tory. Ed Miliband would have lost his seat. Yvette Cooper would have lost her seat. And I spoke to a senior member of the Shadow Cabinet who said, um, you know, actually, this could have been a Scotland. It could have been like Labour in 2015 Scotland when the whole thing just went entirely. Labour have some sort of cause for, for not optimism necessarily, but certainly not despair. And I think if you look at Batley and Spen, which we covered mm. together like a few months ago, and on paper, you'll remember that looked like it was toast for Labour because you had George Galloway on one side of the ledger who was clearly going to take thousands of votes from the Labour Party. And then you had the UKIP type party, which was called the Heavy Woolen District Party, who were sort of Brexiteers and they weren't standing. And you and I both presumed that a massive load of those votes would, would go to the other ledger, i.e. the Conservative ledger. And yet somehow... I think because they had a decent, respected, local, very local candidate, Kim Ledbetter, who's also sister of Joe Cox, the murdered former incumbent. Mm. Yeah, they managed to hold on. And so, you know, th this is why politics is so fascinating, because it is hard to predict. I mean, go going back to your book, I sort, of, I sort of get the impression that you wanted to disprove the, the sort of easy theory that Brexit and Corbyn were the main factors for, for the 2019 wipeout. What did, what, did you, what did you discover on that front during, during your travels? Well, I think, first of all, on Jeremy Corbyn, he was very popular in some parts of the country, particularly among younger voters in the big cities. He was so unpopular in these red wall places. And I know some fans of Mr Corbyn may read Broken Heartlands and just be, be very unhappy with what they see there. But it was so universal. In over the 120 people I interviewed for the book, there was really not much doubt among anyone that he drove people away from Labour. But also Ed Miliband as well. We shouldn't forget that, that he was leader for five years. And a lot of people think that was where the problem started. So he was a major factor. But I just think it's broken in many ways because... People, they voted against Labour by going for Brexit in large numbers in 2016, again in 2017, when many of them started to come over, and then again in 2019. So the likes of Tony Blair, who I interviewed in the book, who said, you just need better leadership and it will come back. I don't quite buy that. I think the main thing people want to know is what are your conclusions from these 120 interviews and, and many hundreds of miles of travelling? 
And the thing I think a lot of our listeners will want to know is basically, does Keir Starmer have a chance at the next election? And secondly, does the Labour Party have any chance of winning an election in our lifetimes, given especially the problems they've got in Scotland? I think this is going to be the big question for Keir come party conference season, which we'll be heading down to Brighton to very shortly, Jim. You know, Keir Starmer, I think, has done a really good job at revitalising Labour internally in terms of getting control of the ruling National Executive Committee, the General Secretary, getting a shadow cabinet more to the, the centre of the Labour Party than to the left under Jeremy Corbyn. The problem is he's got to set out an intellectual vision that can go up against the blue Labour Tories. And I think this is a problem facing left-wing parties all over the world, not just in the UK. And so far, he hasn't really done that. Now, I don't think anything's inevitable in politics. I think Keir Starmer, there's, of course, you could see a massive economic crash. You could see a, a catastrophe in time of government that would then people would just want to chuck the Tories out, something like Black Wednesday in 1992 or potentially the financial crash. But hopefully we won't have something of that apocalyptic scale. But I think the problem for Keir is it's going to take a long time to win these places back. You know, Labour lost 1979. It took them 18 years, in fact, to get back into power. And I think what Keir's trying to do is condense all that reform, all that new policy, all that new faces into a period of four years. And some people like Lord Peter Mandelson think that he can do that. I'm a bit more sceptical and I think his best hope really is to get the party into a better state and then pave the way for someone else who can have a real shot at winning it back in 2029, by which time the Tories will have been in power for 20 years. And as we've said before, only one Labour leader has won a general election in the last 40 years, and that is Tony Blair. Jim, absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for chatting to me about the book. And I'll get one last plug in. Broken Heartlands, A Journey Through Labour's Lost England's available for all bookshops, Amazon, wherever you like perusing now. That's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then please do subscribe. You can receive it through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your pods to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And you could give us a nice positive review or a nice rating if it's a happy weekend. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers were Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next week, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.